we're going to read from God's Word. And uh, we're reading this morning from John's Gospel. So if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it or a Bible on your phone? Otherwise, the words will appear behind me. We're reading from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. And this is God's Word. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, they went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So today we kick off a short series that's going to take in the events of the period of of kind of the church life that we know as Easter, okay? Today, uh, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. It's just a short one. We're looking at three of the big events. Today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is really all about an arrival. And when you think about it, arrivals are a big deal, Every year, the Oscars ceremony takes place, and apart from the one thing which drew the headlines this year of Will Smith slapping another person, the thing that normally draws the headlines are what were the guests wearing when they arrived? What was their outfit? What did they look like? Arrivals are important. At the recent COP26 summit in November, much ado was made about the arrival of U.S. President Joe Biden and his motorcade, okay? Why did a motorcade draw so much attention? Well, it did because there were 21 vehicles in his motorcade, including his own car known as the Beast, which does eight miles per gallon. This was an arrival to a climate change event, right? Arrivals, they're important, A number of years ago, when I was at university, I played music full-time for a little while. And at one stage, we got to do the main support for a band called The Strokes, who were at that time, they were one of the bigger bands in the world. And they were doing a European tour. We got to support them in the Ulster Hall. And so we arrived for sound check, you know, and we're very excited about it, quite nervous, all of that sort of stuff. Arrive at the back door to the Ulster Hall, ring the bell, and like, nobody knows who we are. Of course they don't. We're nobodies, right? So we arrive. And throughout the day, I mean, I lost count of the number of times that my ID, my pass was checked, right? It was checked when I tried to get on stage. It was checked when I got off stage. It was checked when I tried to get in the dressing room. It was checked when I wanted to go to the toilet, right? My pass was checked again and again and again and again. And then they arrived. All New York accents and like achingly cool in their skinny jeans. And, and they, were, they were just the coolest people we had ever seen in our lives, right? And they arrived. And I noticed that over the course of an entire day, not once did anybody ever check their passes, right? Not once. Because everyone was there for them. Everyone. 
The crowd that chanted their name before they got up, the reception when they got on stage, the clamor that was made as they left stage, everyone was there for them. It was an arrival, an incredible arrival. And this is one of the key events, okay, as we think about the life of Jesus. This passage is all about his arrival. We know it's one of the key events because this appears in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all have a version of the events that relate to Palm Sunday. And the events play out in Jerusalem, okay, and that's significant. And even more significantly than it just being Jerusalem, it was Jerusalem at Passover time. And with Passover came a huge crowd. At one point, the first century historian Josephus, he was asked to give, a, to give a count for how many people descended on Jerusalem for Passover festival. Obviously, counting a great many people is very difficult. So he thought that the best way to count the number of people would be to count the number of lambs. You had to register a lamb if you were going to sacrifice one at Passover. So he thought, well, if I count the number of lambs, because they'll all be registered, and I said that there's maybe 10 persons per lamb, right? A family group of 10 per lamb then we can get the total number of people who arrived for Passover. What was the number of lambs? 275,600 lambs. 2.7 million people descended on Jerusalem for Passover festival. And yet the gospel accounts, especially John's, they can be a little bit confusing in terms of what's going on here, right? They, they, they're not that straightforward. Go with me for a second. Like imagine you are doing DIY in your house. You fall off a ladder and you get knocked out, right? So you don't know how long you've been out for. You don't know anything that's happened in between. But all you know is that you have come to in a hospital bed and around you are trees with lights on them, red and white stockings on the wall, you would know instantaneously, right? It's Christmas time. I don't know how long I've been out for, but it's Christmas. Or you come to and there are carved pumpkins around and skeletons and things like that on the wall. You would know it's Halloween. Without knowing any other information, it's Halloween. So imagine if you came to and they were both Christmas trees and carved pumpkins. You'd be like, what on earth is going on? And in lots of ways, what's going on in the passage is exactly the same. You see, on one side, the passage points to Passover. Of course it does. It's Passover time in Jerusalem, right? Cries of Hosanna. They would tell you that if you came to, knowing nothing, that it was Passover time. This was the festival that celebrated the Exodus, God's people getting free from slavery in Egypt. And that normally happened around April in their calendar. But then on the other side, there's these palm leaves, right? And palm leaves, they, they weren't associated with Passover. Palm leaves were associated with another festival called Hanukkah. And that was the festival that celebrated the rededication of the temple. And that happened in December. So what's going on here? What are these confusing images all about? Well, in lots of ways, Palm Sunday is confusing for us too, isn't it? It's hard to come to a day like today and not see the cross that is in the road ahead, isn't it? It's hard to come to Palm Sunday and yet know that within the week we'll be at the cross and we'll be at Easter and we'll be feeling that bright sadness, that strange sets of feelings that we feel, maybe particularly on Good Friday, as we come to the cross knowing that it's victory but experiencing the horror of all Jesus went through, right? It's hard for us to come to a day like today where we're celebrating, right? We're celebrating an arrival knowing that the cross is just down 
the road. So how on earth do we make sense of it? And what is going on? Well, what is going on here is life. This is an arrival, okay? And life has come with this arrival. Life is here. And I want us to unpack two things today that are in the passage that relate to life, okay? The first is that this is life, but not of our dreams. And the second is that this is life and life for all. The first is life, but not of our dreams. A number of years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference. And so I went on the, the first day and I did my main stage session. And then the next day I'm invited to do a number of seminars. So that's fine. I arrive the next day at this slightly smaller venue. There's about 100 people there when I get there. Uh, and when I arrive, there's a venue host. I've never met this venue host before. I don't know them. But this host says to me when I get there, hi there, it's really good to see you. If you don't mind, I'll start the session off and I'll introduce you and then I'll hand over to you and you can crack on with the session. And I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely fine. That's no problem. So I sit back on like a little high stool that is behind him and he gets up to do the introductions and he gets up and he says this, so I just want to welcome you all to today's seminar. It's really great to see you and we are really happy to have John with us today. John is the minister at Carn Money and as he begins to say this, their faces begin to do what your faces are doing right now, right? He begins to see smiles and he begins to think, hold on a minute, that's not John, right? And he looks around at me and I'm smiling and he cobbles together this rather awful end to an introduction because evidently, you know, he didn't look at my bio, so he didn't really know anything about me. He hands over to me and I get up and say, I'm really sorry for those of you that came out today to hear John. It appears they booked the wrong Dickinson, right? And it was the right welcome, but the wrong person. And here's the thing when we read the passage today, there's a welcome going on, right? like an incredible welcome. Millions of people have welcomed this arrival. And the thing is that the welcome in Jerusalem that day only makes sense if both of the images that John is talking about are true, if they fit, right? It only makes sense that if the one who's here is the one who comes for a freedom celebrated at Passover, but also comes in a victory like they celebrate at Hanukkah. In other words, this only makes sense if he is who both of these things are. This is the welcome of a king. And the welcome only makes sense if the one who's arrived is really the king. It only makes sense if he really is all of those things. And that king's welcome that he receives, okay, really what we're reading, what we're kind of watching in this passage, it's a victory parade. Palm Sunday is really victory Sunday. If you look in your Bibles, very often the line at the top of this section will say, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a victory parade. And we know it's a victory parade because of four things that are in the passage, okay? Those four things are the crowd, the welcome, the songs, and the donkey. The crowd, the welcome, the songs, and the donkey, okay? And the passage welcomes, the, it talks about the crowd twice, okay? In verse 12 and in verse 18. Because really, actually, it was two crowds. It wasn't just one, it was two. So on one hand, we have Jerusalem full of people. Those millions of people that we talked about, right? They're all here for Passover. They hear that Jesus is coming and they are rushing out of the city to see him. And then on the other side, we have this crowd that's followed him from the events in Bethany that have just happened the day before. You see, John 11, it tells us how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And unsurprisingly, that had caught people's attention and their imagination, right? They'd heard somebody got raised from the dead. Of course, they were interested. And so what happens? Well, verse 18 says, they followed Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem. So the crowd that day, it was full of pilgrims on one side, there to celebrate the Passover, but also full of people just hanging on to the miracles that they had seen. And sightseers just there because they'd heard that something was happening. Here's the reality. A crowd is easy to draw, isn't it? It's easy to draw a crowd. You just make a scene and people are drawn to it. But the problem with a crowd is that a crowd is, is fickle, isn't it? A crowd is a fickle thing. It always has been. And for sure, some people were there that day just for the show. Jesus was the best show in town in lots of ways. And there were lots of people there just to see what he might do next. He just raised someone from the dead. Like, what's he going to do next? And a crowd always brings a crowd, doesn't it? And crowds are fickle. It is an incredible and a painful thing. But some of the people there that day singing Hosanna, singing praises to this king who has arrived will be the same voices that shout out crucify him less than a week later. There's the crowd and that's the first thing. The second thing is the welcome and the songs, right? This is what it says in verse 13. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And they use the word Hosanna, right? We always use the word Hosanna around Palm Sunday, don't we? And that word Hosanna is Hebrew for save now. One commentator says that what you're actually reading here in this little block is akin to shouting, God save the king. Then what they're singing is God save the king. And this was a familiar song, okay? This whole little bit that they were singing and shouting, it's taken from Psalm 118. And Psalms 113 to 118 are known as the Hallel. And the Hallel were famous words and famous songs. They were praising songs for the Jewish people, right? They were used in the temple. They were used around feasts and festivals. And maybe even more significantly than that, they were the first bit of memory work for every Jewish boy. They knew the songs. And they knew the words. And they knew what they were for. And now they're singing them to this king who has arrived. And then there's the palm leaves. And the thing about palm leaves is that they were most famously and usually used to both wave and lay down before a conqueror as a sign of victory. If you went off and you won a battle in a foreign place and then you came back home, people lay down palm leaves in the road as you returned. Even more than this, in some of the other gospel accounts of, of this, um, of Palm Sunday, they, were, they not only record palm leaves as having been laid down, but also people's own cloaks. Laid down in the dirt and the dust of the road for this person coming back. You don't just do that for anyone, right? You don't just lay your cloak down for anyone returning back. You only lay your cloak down for the king. And finally, we have the donkey. This is what it says in verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. 
And these are words that are actually taken from the prophet Zechariah, okay? They're from Zechariah 9. And everybody would have known that they're the sorts of words that get pointed towards a Messiah, okay? And you might think, okay, so they point to the Messiah, but what on earth is the donkey about then, right? Like, I get the Messiah bit, but donkey? Seriously? Why the donkey? And that's because in our world, a donkey is not a particularly highly thought of or valued animal. Like, you don't have your rich friend and go, you know what they own? A donkey, right? You're not impressed by that, right? But when they say, oh, they have a horse or oh, they own a racehorse, then you think, oh my goodness, these people are really wealthy, right? Because we attribute huge value to something like a horse, but a donkey, unless it's the donkey out of Shrek, right? We don't attribute huge value to a donkey. But that's not the case in the Middle East. You see, we think of a donkey as lowly, don't we? But in the Middle East, they think of a donkey as noble. A donkey is a noble animal. And we have this tendency when it comes to Palm Sunday to see Jesus riding on a donkey. And therefore, our first thought about Jesus is lowly, isn't it? Lowly and humble. That's what we think about it. But actually, there's more going on than just lowliness and humbleness. You see, in the Bible and surrounding culture of the time, it had examples of leaders, royalty even, riding donkeys. So in the book of Judges, for example, Jair the judge, he had 30 sons and all of them rode donkeys. Or in the book of 2 Samuel, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, he was the royal prince. When he rides out to meet David, he rides a donkey. See, a donkey wasn't just lowly. A donkey was noble. And sure, it maybe doesn't make the same kind of statement as, say, riding in on a white horse might make, but then... Jesus intended to make a different sort of statement. Because a king comes riding on a horse when he means for war, but a king comes riding on a donkey when he means for peace. And throughout his ministry, Jesus kind of does this strange thing when you read the gospel accounts of his life. He seems to always want to direct attention away from himself. It's kind of bizarre. So when you read what he does in miracles from time to time, for example, he'll heal someone and then he'll tell him to go home and tell nobody about what he just did, right? That's, that's bizarre, isn't it? He seems to want to direct the attention away from the miracle, away from himself. They'll call him Messiah and Jesus will call himself the Son of Man again and again. And even in John 6.15, the crowd had, had already tried to make him their king and he just walked away. But yet here, at Palm Sunday, Jesus accepts the welcome of a king. What's changed? Well, two things. One, it's the right time. And two, he really was a king. It's his time, and he's a king. That's what's going on at Palm Sunday. You see, he's been announcing the kingdom. Kings have kingdoms. He's been performing miracles, even raising people from the dead. These are the signs of the king that they've been longing for. And his words... Only the true king of Israel would speak like he did. He was a king. He just wasn't the king that they were expecting. And that's what we've got to understand about Palm Sunday. See, this is the arrival and the welcome of a king. He just wasn't the kind of king that they were expecting. So here's the question, because there's always questions whenever we read passages like this. What was the crowd longing for? 
What was the crowd expecting when they gathered there in their millions that day as they rushed from one side and from another, clamoring, singing, shouting, laying their palm leaves and their cloaks down at the arrival of this king? The only question is, what were they expecting from this king that has arrived? Answer, they wanted to see the Romans overthrown. They just wanted to see Rome overthrown. They wanted to see Israel returned to its rightful place. And the truth was they saw Jesus as the one who was going to do it. And so what happened? Well, they lumped all of their expectations on him. They lumped all of what they wanted to see and what they wanted to be done on this king as he arrives. So they roll out the red carpet for him to be and do what they hoped. The thing was, though, Jesus hadn't come to bear out judgment on the Romans. He had come to bear our judgment. He hadn't come that day to bear out judgment on the Romans. He came that day to bear our judgment. Michael Green, the commentator, would write this. He has, come, he has come to rule over the hearts and lives of men and women, not to kick the Romans out, but this reversed most contemporary ideas of what the kingdom should be. Kingdom looked like overthrow, and Jesus didn't come for that. Certainly not that way. His arrival in Jerusalem that day was not as the military Messiah of their expectations. He came as the Prince of Peace. In the middle of the hysteria of a people longing to have their expectations met, here's the reality. Jesus was a king, but he wasn't the king of their dreams. You see, they had dreams and ideas and longings and expectations about what he was going to be and what he was going to do as he arrived. But the reality... He wasn't the king of their dreams. But then most of us will know that reality in our lives too, won't we? Like when I look at my own life and the time that I spend around other people as they follow Jesus and they wrestle through the pain and the struggles and the doubts and all of what it means to try and follow God in this world and in our lives through all that is ahead of us and all that we have to carry and bear, we come to know the fact that Jesus isn't the king of our dreams. We come looking to him for something, don't we? The crowd came looking to him for something that day, but all of us come looking to Jesus for something too, don't we? We go asking for what we want. We go looking for what we think we need, for what is pressing. You see, we want a God who'll get behind our causes and says yes to all the things we like and no to all the things or people that we don't. And if we're not careful, we're believing in a God that we have made in our image. A God who likes all the things we like, who wants all the things we want and dislikes all the things of the people that we don't like. But he is a king. And this king calls us to discipleship, the way of Jesus to be remade, reordered, and reoriented in his image. Not that we make a God in ours. It's why in John 10, Jesus will promise life to the full, not the life of our dreams. You see, we come with our felt needs, and Jesus sees right past it, doesn't he? He sees right past us. He sees right to the root of things, to what we really need if we could only see the world and our lives like he does. N.T. Wright says this of this passage. 
This passage raises questions for us in our own following of Jesus and loyalty to him. Are we ready to put our property at his disposal, to obey his orders even when they puzzle us? Are we ready to go out of our way to honor him, finding in our own lives the equivalents of cloaks to spread on the road before him and branches to weave to make his coming a real festival? Or have we so domesticated and trivialized our Christian commitment, our devotion to Jesus himself, that we look on him simply as someone to help us through the various things we want to do anyway, someone to provide us comforting religious experience? Before we have to come to terms with the cross, and that's coming, we have to come to terms with the king. And Jesus' arrival is as a king. This different sort of king calls us to a different sort of living. The first thing that's happening that day, as that arrival happens, as that welcome comes, is that a king has arrived, and that king means life, but maybe not the life of our dreams. But the second thing is that it means life and life for all. Let's just read on those last few verses in the passage from verses 17 through to 19. This is what it says. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, they went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The 2022 World Inequality Report revealed some startling facts about wealth in our world. As many of us know, the gap between the very richest in our world and the very poorest in our world is getting larger and it's happening faster than it ever has before. So in 2022, when we like to talk about things like equality and fairness, you know, those sorts of words we hear lots in our culture, the reality is quite the opposite. The reality in our world now is that the top 10% of this world own 76% of the total wealth in this world. Top 10% own 76% total, while the bottom 50% of wealth in this world, they own 2% of the total wealth. To put it even more starkly than that, if you want the cold hard truth, it is that the 10 richest men in the world, that's 10 people, they own more than the bottom 3.1 billion people on this earth. 10 people own more than 3.1 billion. And I say that today because we feel or we know that the reality for a great many people is that the greatest privileges, wealth, and opportunities and advantages are reserved for the few, not for the many, aren't they? The greatest advantages, the greatest opportunities, the greatest access, if you will, in this life is afforded to the few and not the many. And when you think about this passage and then you think about the world in which we live, like the question is, who has access to a king or a queen, right? Like you or I or Joe Bloggs doesn't just walk into Buckingham Palace and say, hi, nice to meet you. How are you doing? You know, that doesn't happen. Access is reserved for a very small number of people, but not this king, not at Palm Sunday. We're seeing a king arrive who brings life for all, for everyone. 
In verse 19, we have the Pharisees and we read them saying, this is getting us nowhere. And the this that they're talking about in question is almost certainly their plot to kill Jesus. You can read that in chapter 11, towards the end of chapter 11 of John's gospel. You see, they'd heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw the crowd that was rushing after him and they decided that the best way to stop him, kind of his influence and his taking people with him and their loss of control was just to kill him, right? Seems like quite an effective method. Just kill him and get rid of him, and then we can be in control again, right? So that's what they're planning to do. This, this plan, they're saying, it's getting us nowhere. And right here in Jerusalem, they say, see how the whole world has gone after him. And when we read that, they're not saying that in a praising manner, okay? They're not like saying, like, look at the crowd he's drawn, right? They're not excited about it. We need to read the tone of what they say. You see, we already know from in John, John chapter 7 that they're looking down their nose at the people who are following Jesus. So in John chapter 7, they refer to Jesus' followers as a rabble. They're like, look at this rabble following this king, right? Like it's a mockery. They're looking down their nose, snooty at the people running after Jesus that day. Look at this rabble going after him, is what they're saying. But actually, even as they look down their noses, they just confirm that day, those verses in the Bible that we have heard probably more than any other. For God so loved the world, John would write in chapter 3. And now John will write in chapter 12, see how the whole world has gone after him. For God so loved the world, now see how the whole world has gone after him. This is John 3.16 in action. And love is at the very center of it all. See, Jesus is fulfilling his mission to the whole world and he's doing it because of love. It's why already John has said in, in chapter 10, because of love, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. And then he'll write in John chapter 11, because of love, Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. And because of love, right after this passage, in verse 20, some Greeks, the outsiders, they will say to Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then in verse 32 of chapter 12, because of love, once again, Jesus will write, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I am drawing all people to myself. Because of love, because of love, because of love for all. This is a king. But access to him is not the reserve of the few. It's access for all. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey, bringing a crowd with him who saw or heard that he'd just raised a man from the dead, arriving into Jerusalem while it filled with millions of people, full of expectations, full of hopes, and full of longings, he makes himself visible as the king at the most visible time possible. This is a king, but not like one anyone had ever seen before. When you think about kings of that time and what they did, how they ruled, how they laid down authority, how they conducted themselves. He's a king, but not like any they'd ever seen. He's a king who raises lives, who doesn't take them. He's a king who heals and doesn't hurt. He's a king who serves, who doesn't demand to be served. He's a king who frees and doesn't slave, who washes feet, who sacrifices himself and not others, who gives himself 
away. Does all of this, while at this moment in this passage, he's maybe the most wanted man in all of that region. There's a plot out to take his life and he makes himself as visible as it is possible to be. This is an act of incredible, courageous love. And in this next week, as we make that walk, okay, through Holy Week, all the way to Good Friday, and all of the horrors that fill Good Friday, as we read about those events, as we think about them, as we try ourselves to experience them, we realize just how far that courageous love was prepared to go for you and for me and for all. You see, access won't just be for the few. It will be for everyone. And the question is this morning, where you sit, what is holding you back? What is holding you back from experiencing a love like that? A love that would go that far. A love that would throw wide the gates, that would not just be the reserve of the few, but would be open to the many. What is holding you back? Like that crowd that day, we all come to Jesus with longings. We all come to Jesus with expectations. We all come to Jesus with our stuff. What is it that's holding you back this Palm Sunday as he arrives? He is here. What is holding you back? What's your stuff that you feel is holding you back? Jesus would say to you, come to me. You feel you're on the outside, Jesus would say, come in. If you have doubts, he says, I love you. You feel a long way off and it's been a long time. He would say, I never give up on you for God so loved the world. See how the whole world has gone after him. That's why Paul will write a bit later in Romans chapter eight. Paul will write, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers of any kind nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is a king. And he comes to offer full life. His arrival that day is the heralding of life to the full, but maybe not life of our dreams. But also he comes, and this is life for all. Access is not just for the few, it's for the many. You know, right after this passage and the events that happen in Palm Sunday, okay, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, the next passage is how he cleansed the temple, you know, where he overturns the tables and he makes a whip and he kind of knocks around all of the people that are selling and trading in that place. We know that story well. But the incredible thing about that story is that Jesus undoes something there that had happened hundreds of years before. In 164 BC, the Maccabees, they had kind of overturned the Greeks who were in charge, okay? The Maccabees were Jewish. They were kind of purists in terms of their faith. They had a a war that had raged for three years, which they finally win. And the big act of that winning of the war was rededicating the temple, which is actually the thing that Hanukkah celebrates, which is the festival we've been talking about, palm leaves and all that. And when they did, they kicked out all of the foreigners from the temple. They made it clean and a place only for the insider. In other words, everyone out. And then what does Jesus do? 
Jesus goes into the temple. He returns the tables. He makes a whip and knocks all the traitors out and does all of that sort of stuff. And then we read, when he cleanses the temple, he says this in Mark 11, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, everybody in. This is a king. And he's not like one anybody ever saw before, but he is a king. And before we come to terms with the cross and what that means for each of us, we need to come to terms with the king, first of all. He's a king with a kingdom. He's a king who speaks the kinds of words that only a king could speak. He's the king that does the sorts of things that only the true king could do. But that king, who's a different sort of king, calls us to a different kind of living. But that king offers life for all. This is not the reserve of the few. This is the offer to everyone. And it's because of love. That same love that will lead us in this next week all the way to the cross. That's the kind of love. And it's open to you and to I this Sunday morning. The question is, what's holding you back?